This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. My name's David Byrne, and for me, family is beyond blood connection, although there's definitely that, but also the connection with friends and colleagues and people that you see regularly and you work with. And we tend to think of those people as part of our family, not just the people that we're kind of genetically related to. It kind of goes beyond that. It goes to a little community that we all create for ourselves. Hello and welcome to We Are Family. I am your host, Julia Dennison, and I am here with the musical legend that is David Byrne. You'll know him, of course, from Talking Heads, but he's also been an actor, filmmaker, and writer, and he's currently starring in his own show on Broadway, American Utopia, which has been called the best live show of all time, and I can confirm it's truly an amazing experience. David, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. So let's talk a little bit about American Utopia. You released it as your first solo album, 14 Years. What made you decide to turn it into this beautiful spectacle of a Broadway show? It wasn't initially my idea to turn it into a Broadway show. I was putting it together as a concert tour, which we did for a while. And some Broadway producers saw it and (laughs) said, you have to bring this to Broadway. I didn't know who they were, but that planted the seed in my head. So after that, I started thinking, well, how would I change it so that it works in a Broadway theater? Because it's a different, it's a different world. It's a different uh, set of expectations that the audience brings when they come to a Broadway show rather than, say, a, a music concert. Yeah. So I thought, let's. How can we change that? What need? What needs to be changed? And it was so beautiful. Just before we hit record, Sam, the producer, and I were just telling you about how emotional it really made us feel coming out a little bit out of this pandemic that we've been in um, to see American Utopia. It was just such a beautiful experience. And obviously, we're a parenting podcast here, so I always look at things through the lens of, of parenthood. And one of the themes I really loved from the show was the idea of how, as humans, we really love to look at other humans. And that's what we love to do most. And I feel like in a way that gets at the crux of why parenthood is so fascinating and wonderful and complicated and hard at the same time. Can you talk a little bit about that concept of the need to look at other humans and how that kind of influenced your your production? I came to realize that as a species, we're social animals. There are certain animals that kind of live alone and then they only get together to mate and then they kind of go off on their own again. We're not like that. We we're built to be social. And part of being a social animal means that you're kind of paying attention to how other people are relating to you. We've evolved to really pay a lot of attention to people's faces that they're what they're communicating through their faces, through their body language, through their gestures, through their the tone of their voice. That tells us how that person is relating to us, how we're relating to them, if they're listening to us, if if they're feeling kindly towards us, if they're liking what we're saying or what we're doing, all those sorts of things. We've evolved to really kind of pay a lot of attention to 
other people. It's it's kind of how we survive. It's how we thrive. And yeah, so I realized that, okay, uh, <laughs> how do we incorporate that into a stage show? And well, one way of doing it is to take away everything else. So that's a lot of what we did. Sounds very simple to remove all the kind of instruments and amplifiers and bits and bobs and microphones and everything else from the stage, everything. That is a simple idea, but technically it's very difficult and very complicated to realize. There's a lot going on backstage that allows us to be on stage without any of that stuff. I figured that. It's one of those things where like to have that simplicity is actually, I can imagine, quite quite challenging and a lot happening. There was one moment that I wanted to hear a little bit of the backstory again, because we're a parenting podcast. So I'm always thinking about younger generations and kids, but you have a song on the album and in the show called Everybody's Coming to My House. And the lyrics are, now everybody's coming to my house and I'm never going to be alone. And you talked in the show a little bit how, for you, that was kind of a lament of wanting space and time to yourself. But then I think you spoke to some kids who saw it as the opposite. Is that right? We invited a high school choir in Detroit, Michigan, to interpret the song. They did an incredible job. But what struck me was that their version and they, and I could say this in the show, they didn't change a single word, but somehow the meaning of the song was transformed. My version is it appears that I'm kind of being a, a little bit who I am uh, and kind of being a little bit apprehensive about all these people coming over to my house and and how do I deal with that and so feeling a little socially awkward. The kids felt like, oh, no, let's invite more people over. Let's invite everybody over. Let's welcome them. And it had a, it was a much more generous spirit than my own. And I so I thought that that's wonderful. I, I don't know how they did that, but they they really transformed it into something better than what I started with. It reminded me a little bit of of something else you mentioned in the show about how babies' brains have hundreds of more neural connections than we do as adults, and then we kind of lose them as adults. And it does kind of make me realize that there is some inspiration to be had from these younger generations just because their brains are firing in a totally different way than ours might be. So I'd love to talk a little bit about your childhood. You were born in Scotland, and then you moved to Canada, and you eventually settled in the U.S. at age eight. yes. How much do you remember from that time period? I remember Canada, a little bit in Canada. Of course, I remember the snow. There was a lot more snow than there was in Baltimore. I remember some of my friends. I remember running around the neighborhood there. But that's about it. It's, uh, that's kind of the, the childhood memories. Do you remember that move to the U.S. when you were eight? Did that take some assimilating? Yeah, of course, I remember kind of moving into a new apartment uh, in the kind of Baltimore suburbs. I remember going to a new school, and the Canadian school system, I think, starts a little earlier or is more maybe a little more accelerated, because when I got into the Baltimore public school system, I thought, oh, man, we've already covered this stuff. I can coast here for a while. <laughs> <laughs> this, we've already done all this. Can you tell us a little bit about your, your parents? What, what kind of parents were they? What were your mom and dad like? My parents are, were both Scottish, came from Glasgow. They were what in Scotland and other places would be called a mixed marriage, which in, in that context means that 
one family is Catholic and the other is Protestant. To many people, that may seem like it uh, is of no consequence and, well, so what? But in certain cultures and countries, that does mean a lot. For instance, in Glasgow, where they're from, there are two football teams, football meaning soccer, and one is kind of for the Catholic fans and one is for the Protestant fans. It's kind of unbelievable to say that, but... uh yeah. Yeah, and you only need to look at the conflict in Northern Ireland to see how seriously people take this. Absolutely. So that's my parents' background. My father trained as an electrical engineer and then was hired by an American corporation, Westinghouse. That was part of a kind of phenomena at that time where the U.S. was, especially these big corporations, were recruiting immigrants who were trained. So... Places like Scotland, who didn't have work for people like my father, they kind of lost out. They lost a lot of these people to the U.S. and elsewhere. So we ended up in Baltimore, living and growing up, and I grew up in the suburbs there. Did you stay in touch with your family back in Scotland? Yes, we would go, I think it was maybe every couple of years, maybe, in the summers, when I would, you know, on school vacation, we'd go back to Glasgow and my parents would visit their parents. I'd visit cousins and uncles and aunts and all of that. The kind of normal family thing, but we only got to do it every every once in a while. What were your memories of those summers? Were they good summers? Yes, it was all fine. Uh, I remember, in retrospect, you realize how different their lives were uh, from the lives, say, in suburban Baltimore. My grandparents' house was heated by coal fires. So you had to get up in the morning, and someone, whoever got up first, had to start a fire. And that's kind of how the house would get warmed up. And somebody would bring coal, that would, you know, the, the merchant would bring coal, and there was like a chute outside the house that would, you know, dump it into the basement. I mean, the same thing used to happen here in New York, but it stayed on in Glasgow for a long time. There were other kinds of things I remember. I remember that to get gas to cook breakfast, let's say, you had to put a shilling in a meter, and that would give you gas for a certain amount of time. It was like a, you know, like a parking meter or whatever. You got a certain amount long enough to cook breakfast. You had to pay as you go. Glasgow, I remember, was black. The soot from all those coal fires, you could smell the coal everywhere. I grew to associate that smell with my grandparents and all my relatives. So I kind of liked that smell. But it made all the buildings black. Wow. Now they've sandblasted and cleaned the buildings. There, it's a, it's a beautiful red sandstone all over Glasgow. But decades ago, the buildings were all black. Thank you. 
Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So now thinking back of your own childhood, what kind of child were you like? And obviously you're hugely creative in your career now. Was creativity something that your parents encouraged in you? I was a child who was, I had friends, but I was also very happy being alone and kind of doing things by doing things on my own, whether it was drawing or going exploring in the woods or whatever it might be. I had no problem with that. And my parents did not push me into any of those kind of things. Like if they saw that I had an interest in art or drawing or something like that, they didn't say, oh, oh we're, we're going to get you some lessons or anything. There was none of that. But they didn't discourage me either, which I think was very important. They just left me alone to do what I wanted to do. And I think that was really, really uh, important for me, that they, uh, that they were, they, it wasn't like, oh, you'll, you're wasting your time doing that. There was no attitude like that. It was just like, this is what David wants to do. Let him do it. Just let him, yeah. Yeah, so I'd just go off into my room or down in the basement or wherever it happened to be, and I'd just spend hours kind of drawing. That's wonderful. You spoke to Amy Schumer on her podcast a little bit about the fact that you believe you might be on the autism spectrum, and I was wondering if, whether that was something you had an inkling about growing up and what that meant for your career and your relationships growing up. It wasn't until... I was older that a friend said, uh, David, do you know about this thing called the, um, the Asperger's and this idea of the spectrum, all, kind of an autism spectrum? And she said, this sounds like it describes you, some of this. And so I've, I had no, no idea growing up or anything. But when I kind of read about this, I thought, oh, some of this I recognized that i Felt a little uncomfortable socially. I didn't quite know how to, how to do things and what to do and how one was supposed to behave in certain ways. That I was, as I said, very happy being alone if I, if that was the situation. I could kind of have this laser focus on whatever I was doing, whether it was drawing or making little models or whatever kind of thing that I did at the time. It wasn't until later on that I was told, oh, this was slightly unusual and that <laughs> that there's a name for this. Of course, I, so I realized, oh, yes, okay, that, that describes me. But it, for me, I also realized it, this was very mild. It was also something that, as I think happens with others, you kind of grow out of it over many years, or at least you grow out of certain aspects of it. I'm no, no longer as socially uncomfortable as I used to be. I hear 
funny stories from friends about kind of going to, say, a party or a gathering with me and then me just kind of uh, sitting there silently listening or going off in the corner and kind of taking interest in who, who somebody else's book collection <laughs> rather than engaging in conversation. I never saw it as being a kind of disability or a problem. For me, of course, you that's who you are. You just think that's who I am. I find, say, exploring somebody else's books is very interesting. I felt maybe a little more comfortable talking with them, but I could kind of understand who they are by looking at their books. I think that uh, being a performer was uh, was a kind of compensation for that. It allowed me to kind of put myself forward on stage, and then I could retreat into myself when I came off stage. And But it also allowed me to kind of have an outlet that way, uh, to express myself in ways that I was not able to do socially. So at the top of the show, you talked about the importance of family, not necessarily being biological, but, you know, our, our village, our found family. As you moved away from home, who became part of your found family, so to speak? I went to art school um, after high school. And, yeah, I had a couple of, a couple of close friends that I hung out with, you know, the room, became roommates and and I realized in retrospect that given that I was socially awkward, I would tend to gravitate towards people who would, were very gregarious and social. Interesting. Yeah. So the, I could kind of latch on to them and they would kind of be the outward connection and I could just be there and kind of listen and tag along. <laughs> Ride their wave. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Yes, it sounds a bit calculating when I describe it that way. And of course, if it was calculated, it was very unconscious. I was not aware <laughs> that I was doing this. But when, I, in retrospect, I look at it and go, oh, I see what you were doing. You, you, <laughs> you were using your friends to facilitate kind of being social. Makes sense. So I want to talk about you as a dad. So you were married in 1987. Your daughter was born in 1989. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell me about her full name? Because it, it sounds very meaningful. Malou Abani Valentine Lutzburn. That's her full name. She may have added more to it since then. I'm not sure. <laughs> we gave her <laughs> lots of options. <laughs> and, and, and I think we told her at, at some point, you can pick one of the other names if you want. It's really up to you. But she stuck with Malou. Of, of course, uh, as with any parent, you kind of relive your own life in some ways vicariously through this young person who's discovering the world and discovering other people and every discovering themselves and you you kind of forget what that's like and this young person your child reminds you that you did this as well you went through this same process and experience and it's kind of it's kind of wonderful to watch it unfold with them what kind of parent were you to Malou, or how would you describe your parenting style? I seem to remember that I was the more, I don't know, not discipline, but I was the more restrictive parent. I was the one who was more restrictive about, no, you can't watch more TV, or you can't, mm -hmm. watch, you can't watch another Disney vi video. I was a little more <laughs> 
kind of lay down the law in, in some kind of ways. I was okay with that. I mean, that's the way I felt. But on other ways, both my wife and I were incredibly tolerant. Malou would, uh, there was a period where she decided to wear uh, a wig all the time. She could be a character, like in, in a fairy tale, if she had a wig and hair that she could toss back and all that. We just let her do that. And she'd wear it outside and, you know, wear it around. The school might, at some point might have said, her head's getting really sweaty under there. <laughs> but, you know, other than that, we kind of let her do whatever she wanted to do in that way. We let her express herself however she wanted to. She could explore how she wanted to be. I feel like there are so many conventional elements to being a parent, the boring, mundane, repetitive tasks that need to be done, the disciplining. How did you deal with that? Was that something that came easy to you? Were you really kind of into the the sort of mundane elements of being a parent? To be honest, a lot of the mundane elements were really difficult for me. They're, very, they're kind of routine that you have to abide by. A child really likes a routine. Once there's a pattern, I kind of like to expect that to continue. And I think I also, as with a lot of kind of first-time parents, I was trying to figure out how do you be a parent? There's, um, and there's plenty of people, plenty of books about it, but really you you have to kind of figure it out for yourself as you go, which is not always easy. Yes, there's books, but the, the kind of instruction manual does not really come with the child. I know. I always say, like, nobody's an expert in being a parent. You can read up all you want, and you can be an expert in the in the topic of parenthood, but nobody knows really what they're doing when it comes to being a parent. Yeah, yeah. But so you've, you're now a grandfather. Yes, I think your grandson's about three years old. Yes, I'm now a grandfather. Uh, Malou has a son who is about two and a half, something like that. What's your relationship with your grandson? We get along great. As often happens with grandparents, I get to play with him, and we do things together, and we have a lot of fun together, but I don't have to do a lot of the mundane stuff. Right. They live in a different town. They live upstate, a couple of hours north. So I don't see them every day. It's not like they're, like we're neighbors. It's not like I get handed the grandchild and said, okay, grandpa, you're babysitter today. Uh, yeah, I get to not have those responsibilities. That's the nice part, I think, about being a grandparent. So so I hear anyway. What are the, some of the things you love to do with your, your grandson? Do you listen to music? Have you introduced him to your, to your music at all? Yeah, a little bit. He knows, he knows that that's what I do. I think he's seen me on a, you know, on a video or something like that. So he, he can imitate my dancing. Sometimes I will, I'll play an instrument for him, but not necessarily sing. Uh, the singing part is, it's just the the rhythm. A child will get a, will get a rhythm. Like if you just play a rhythm on a guitar or something like that, the child will start dancing to it immediately. Mm-hmm. It's kind of amazing how how it affects our, our, our bodies, how music does that. Mm-hmm. And they love it when you say start slow and then go faster and faster. Uh, that's really <laughs> exciting. You can play an instrument and follow them from room to room. So, yeah, all those things. It's just wonderful seeing their whole personality take shape in their own individual way. So the last question that we always ask everybody on the podcast is, what are your hopes and dreams for your family for the future? 
Oh, hopes and dreams for family in the future. <laughs> Probably like anything, we hope that we all stay connected. Hope that we all can find a kind of happy, engaging lives for, for each other. And that we find a way to be kind to ourselves, to our, the rest of the people in our kind of extended family. And that that's what we can bring to the world. That's a beautiful way to end this show. Thank you so much, David Byrne, for coming on the podcast. This has been such a wonderful chance to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with the incredible David Byrne. Next time, you'll hear what it's like raising teenagers who also happen to be multi-Grammy award-winning musicians. I will be speaking to actor Maggie Baird, who is mom, to Phineas and Billie Eilish. Be sure to follow We Are Family on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you don't miss an episode. And we'd love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, we'd really appreciate it. You can also find us online at parents.com slash wearefamilypodcast. We Are Family is presented by me, Julia Dennison, and produced by Sam Walker. Editing is by Vincent Cachione, and thanks also to the rest of our production team at Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, and Danielle Roth. We'll see you back here next week for more We Are Family.